Oh, to be young and in love. I remember somebody saying that to Abby and me way back when we were teenagers, and I remember this fellow saying it um, as sort of a backhanded compliment. Uh, it was a bit condescending at the time. I think we were still teenagers. And, um, and when he said it, it sort of had the feel of the way in people in Kentucky, I lived in Kentucky for a long time, that they would say things like, God bless his heart. If somebody in Kentucky says something like that to you, God bless his heart, God bless her heart, they don't mean it in a real religious sort of way. Um, in fact, quite the opposite. What they really mean is, aren't you the dumbest little thing? You know, um, like I bet you couldn't add with a calculator, could you? You know, something like that. <clears throat> a young woman walks into church and dressed like she's going to a nightclub and the ladies in the back of the church will test their tongues and, you know, and then they'll say, God bless her heart, you know, um, or, you know, a young man has to call a tow truck because he's at the side of the road and he's working on his car and he can't, can't fix a flat tire. And, and the guys down at the Winn-Dixie or the barbershop hear that he was turning the lug nuts the wrong way. And they'll say, God bless his heart. Oh, my word. You know, just shake their head and something like that. So this guy, well, you know, says to Abby and me, oh, isn't it great to be young and in love? And I didn't really like his condescending attitude. I was a bit repulsed by it. Um, I, I sort of felt like he was saying... Oh, how naive you are, you know. You think you get all planned out, don't you? But you really don't, and you don't know what's ahead of you, and all this sort of stuff sort of made me recoil. I thought about, I could have said, oh, you know, it's, um, it's probably better than to be old and cynical, but I didn't say that. I didn't have any um, kind of nasty comments to, to retort back to him. Uh, but I thought about how it, there are much worse things than to be young and in love, right? I mean, there are a lot worse things than that, and I think it would be sad if you were young and not, you know, you were obviously against love or, or, you know, you were opposed to the idea of love. I mean, what would we rather see? You know, people who are young and, and harsh and cynical and jaded? I mean, I don't know that that's a preferable option. <clears throat> There's something sweet and good, innocent, lovely about people who are young and in love. But I think what older people mean sometimes, what we older people mean when we say things like that, is that young people don't realize often how vulnerable love makes you. I mean, I think that's sort of the, that's the warning. That's the sort of, oh, you know, uh, a bit condescension or the, or the call of na- naivete, that, that we don't realize how love opens us up to, to suffer, to hurt, to have pain. And we all learn that lesson sooner or later, don't we? We all learn that lesson of heartbreak. I mean, in one way or another we find out that heartbreak is painful. I remember Heidi Humphrey in the eighth grade. Heidi Humphrey was my girlfriend for a while. Um, you know, I wasn't new to the whole dating scene. I had, had girlfriends. I, I once dated Rebecca Johnson for an entire month. So um, I had, uh, you know, I had some experience there. And, and I was in love with Heidi. And she was not in love with me, you know, um, and, and she toyed with me. She, she, you know, played me along. She, um, she, uh, you know, made me her sort of, um, I don't know, a lap dog or something. You know, she, and, and, and then she up and moved to Utah. I know. And left me heartbroken. And I remember my, uh, I, I went and spent a summer that summer with my cousin and, and she had an old eight track player. And, and I would put that uh, eight, eight track by Nazareth. You, you have to be a little bit. Nazareth, I would listen to this song called um, Love Hurts. Have you ever, you ever heard this? Um, 
Yeah. Um, it said, in, in, the lyrics go something like this. I'm young, I know, but even so, and I learned from you. I really learned a lot, really learned a lot. Love is like a flame. It burns you when it's hot. Oh, and I, I felt that pain, you know, that dirty dog Heidi who had left me high and dry as she moved off to Utah. And it didn't take long before I became cynical and a little bit jaded about the whole thing. <clears throat> I didn't like her anyway. She wasn't all that cute. And, blah, blah, blah. And, and I'm singing the Jay Giles band, Love Stinks. That's what I started to sing after that. You know, I got the blues, the reds and the pinks. One thing's for sure, Love Stinks. You know, and then I was over it. You know, this had, I, had, I had turned the corner. And I think that we kind of have this thing about the idea of love is love is something that sort of happens to you. Whatever sort of love it is, whether it's a, a dating relationship love or a love for a, a friend or the love a, a parent has for a child or a child for its parent or grandparent, and love is sort of something you can't control. It, it just sort of happens to you. You're, you're a bit of a victim of love. It, it does what it does and it just kind of grabs you and pulls you along. It's uncontrollable. You're passive in this. It's non-volitional. And it's always a matter of affection. And I think it's because of all this baggage that we've put into it with a lot of really cheesy, bad rock and roll lyrics to go along and reinforce the idea. It's because of all this that we have a difficult time understanding and getting our heads around the words of Jesus, which are the words of Moses, which are ultimately the command of God. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Before we get there, just a minute to remind you of the situation. Jesus has... um, He has been very provocative to the religious leadership of his day. He went into the temple where all these um, these uh, fellows were selling and uh, well, actually, they were selling the sacrifices. They were exchanging money. Uh, It was kind of a complicated system, uh, but it was really good if you happened to be one of the people called the Sadducees who ran the temple. They would not sell a sacrifice that had been already pre-approved, and you had to have a approved sacrifice. They wouldn't sell one for regular Roman coinage. They would instead have a special coinage that was only good at the temple, and they had people out there who would exchange your Roman currency for this temple currency. And the exchange rate was exorbitant, and there was only one place you could make this exchange. And so there was a big kind of a profiteering going on, and Jesus goes into this temple courtyard and where they're doing this and begins to t- overturn tables. You perhaps remember this story from uh, Passion Week. And, and so he's overturning these tables and, and causing this big ruckus, and the people who ran the temple, the Sadducees, the priests, were very angry with Jesus. They, they, they wanted to, you know, to, to fight back against him. Jesus also, right on the back end of that, goes on this preaching mission where he preaches against the very pious lay people of the area. They're called Pharisees. And so he's attacking the religious leadership both in terms of the, the clerical ranks and the lay ranks. And he's going after everybody. And, and so he's made a lot of enemies. He's called them all frauds and fakes. If you don't know, people don't like to be called that. And so they were recoiling against him and they were ready to, to uh, find a way to get rid of him. We're going to trap him. Trap him in his words. We'll pin him between the government and, and the, the religious establishment. We'll see which way he squirms. He'll either be a hypocrite or he'll be a sellout. And either way, we get rid of him. And so they, they kept coming after him. And, and we have this series of three tests. The first one uh, was the Pharisees. They tried. Um, he got out of that one. Then the, uh, the Sadducees came after him, and he silenced them, uh, uh, Matthew says. And then 
the Pharisees group together. They have a little, actually the word is synagogue. They have a little gathering. They get together. Uh, let's talk about this. Okay. And they do a little huddle and they bring out the heavy artillery. They bring out a lawyer. How? You don't know how I'm resisting all the lawyer jokes. I could be really going after them, but I'm not. They bring out the lawyer. They're going to, Phil, just one maybe, you know, like a thousand, what do you call a thousand lawyers at the bottom of the ocean? A good start, right? Yeah, something like it. So they bring out the lawyer. Don't worry, I got, I got clergy jokes too. They share them all the time. Um, they bring out the lawyer, but he's not really the lawyer. He's really not like we think of a barrister. He's not, he doesn't do the work of, of you know, prosecuting a case or defending people. Or, or He's not like that kind of lawyer. This guy is what we would call a biblical scholar. He is an expert in the Torah, the law of God. So he, they bring out the Bible expert. They bring out the Ph.D. in, in Old Testament studies. And then they bring him in and they say, okay, Mr. Preacher Man, tell us, what is the most important, what's the most significant, what's the greatest command in the Bible, in the Torah? Um, This is not an easy question to answer because there are 613 commands in the Torah. The Talmud says there are 613 commands, 365 are negative prohibitions. There are these, all these commands. Okay, out of 600. Now, I don't know. Maybe you used to take those multiple choice exams in college. I mean, could you imagine you get, you know, one of three, one of four, one of five, one of 613. I mean, that's a pretty, that's a pretty daunting task, isn't it? And Jesus answers the question. He says, the greatest commandment is this. The first and greatest commandment, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You, you should love the Lord your God with all that you have. It is, he says, the megale and prote, the greatest mega, the mega commandment. I like that. That's like you could, you could sell that in a store, couldn't you? The mega commandment. You could get 25% more in this commandment. The mega commandment and the first, the, the very most significant, the primary commandment is to love God with all your being. And then he throws a little caveat in there. How can you throw a caveat into the first and greatest? And a second is just like it. Um, it's like saying it's the same thing, only different. The second is just like it. I thought that was clever. It's just, it is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's a little big challenge, isn't it? I mean, that's first of all, is it first or is it second? I mean, you've you got to pick one. You can't have both, right? Jesus is ultimately saying, I think, that the commandments are like... Are, The whole of the Bible is like a door with two hinges. In fact, he uses this word hang, which is the same word as a hinge. Imagine a door with two hinges. And if you take off either hinge, what will happen? The door will fall off, it will swing, it won't won't work properly. You need both of these, one and the other. But here's the thing. These are commands. The first and greatest command. The second command that is just like it, you shall love, you are to love, you will love. I mean it, you shall love. This is sort of, um, this is what we call an imperative in, in, in the grammar of it. This is sort of like what a parent says to his or her child, right? You will mow the grass. No, I don't really feel like it. No, you will mow the grass, right? This is not a question. I don't, there's no question mark attached to the end of the statement. It's a period. You shall love God 
and your neighbor. It is a command. You are to love Yahweh, your God, with all of your being and your neighbors yourself, period. Not just your spouse, not just your family, not just your close friends. You shall love God first and foremost above all things with all of your being and your neighbors yourself. Now, there's some complications here, aren't they? I mean, the first is, what does that look like? What does it look like to love God first and foremost? What does it look like to love your neighbors yourself? But the second complication is even more, how do you love on command? I mean, it's like, you know, somebody who's frightened. You go into a child's room and, and, and she's frightened in the night, you know, and she says, oh, I, I'm having a bad dream, you know. The, what, and you say, don't be afraid. I mean, how can you say, don't be afraid? She's already afraid. You don't just turn that off because you said so. How do you love on command? And one of the real problems is, I think, our whole Western notion of what it means to love. We think of love as primarily an affection. We might call it romance, you know, not just a, not just a romance that, you know, uh, uh, spouses have for one another, but I mean like a, a romance that even you have, you know, a, an affection for your children or grandchildren or, or that you would have for your parents or friends. This affection is this warm internal feeling. I remember, as many of you parents do, when, when um, each time, I can, I can go in my mind in an instant to each time one of my sons was born, and the nurse says to me, would you like to hold your son? And she places this little baby in my arms. I have never seen him, never spoken to him. Well, I did speak to him. I rec- actually used to read the box scores through the belly from my, so they would know how things were going on in baseball and all that. But I, I never actually touched him. Never laid eyes upon him other than through a, like, you know, a grainy kind of uh, ultrasound. But as soon as that nurse placed that baby in my hands, I loved him. I mean, I knew it. I was inwardly could feel that love and affection. But that is not all of what it means to love. In fact, it's not even the most important part of love. There's a great book by um, a guy named Bernard Brady called uh, Christian Love. And he says in the conclusion of there are five characteristics that he finds in Christian love. Affect- uh, the, um, the affective, that is the warmth, the feeling, the emotion. But the second, affirming. He, he says this, love is the simple yet profound recognition of the worthiness and goodness in persons. Third, responsive. It seeks the well-being of others. Fourth, it's unitive. It Love seeks to unite. It never seeks to divide. You could work through that in a lot of places in our world where you find divisiveness and division. And you could say to yourself, you know what? That is characteristically unloving if it, if it divides and does not unite. And fifthly, it's steadfast. It does not give up. I think most of us could buy into that. But we think about number two through five, affirming, responsive, unitive, and steadfast, as being a result of the affection that we have. But I want to say, I think it could just as easily that affection could be the result and not the source. That any time we're affirming, responsive, unitive, steadfast, that there develops an affection, a warmth for one another towards God and towards other people. How can Moses and Jesus command love? Because love is not merely an emotion. It's not merely the way we feel. It's our decision. It's a volitional act that I will love someone else. In my first pastorate, way back in, um, 
in the, the late 90s, early 2000s. It was in uh, the Grassy Lake Methodist Church in, uh, in Mount Sterling, Kentucky. And um, at the Grassy Lake Church, there were a couple of parishioners I had, Bert and Ruby Deals, who couldn't come to church very often. Um, Ruby suffered from an acute case of Alzheimer's, and Bert was uh, the main caretaker for her. They were um, their late 70s, early 80s. And uh, I was a young clergyman, very little experience with the whole Alzheimer's kind of situation. And um, my little experience that I had made me frightened of it. I didn't really know what to do with it. But they were my parishioners. I had no choice. I had to go see them, right? And and so I went to visit them. And it was the easiest thing to do because Bert Dills was um, a hospitable and welcoming person. And he would always cut me some rhubarb pie and and, uh, give me a cup of coffee. And and Ruby would, every time I came to see her, she would, I'd have to be introduced all over again. One of the first places I took to wearing a collar was there because every time I walked in, she instantly recognized that and knew that I was a clergyman. But Bert did something that was so amazing is he would relive Ruby's memories for her to me. And he would tell me about how when he was in the war, Ruby had to go up to Wright Field in Ohio. So they say down there, Ohio. And, uh, and she would work at the, at, like the Rosie the Riveter at the Wright-Patterson Airfield making bombs or whatever she was doing. And she'd say to her, you remember that, Ruby? Remember how you would do that? And all of a sudden, she'd light up and she'd say, oh, yeah, I remember that. And he'd tell other stories. And he'd tell them about their, how they would work in the church and what they would do with the youth group and, and how they would garden and all these sorts of things. And, and every time, she was kind of light up and she would have a moment of, me- of reflection and memory. He was never embarrassed, Bert Dills was, never embarrassed with her, never harsh with her, And she could never return to him the affection that he gave to her. And Bertdiels didn't just do that with Ruby. This is the way he was with everybody. People would say, oh, such a godly man, such a shame to see him going through this. Such a shame, Ruby was such a lovely person, such a shame to see her going through this. And Bert passed away before Ruby did. Went home to be with the Lord and I did his funeral. And I remember saying at his funeral... You know what? There may never be a church named after Burt Dills. It'll never be called St. Burnt of, uh, of Mount Sterling or anything like that. St. Burnt of Kentucky. That would be awesome. Never be that. A few people outside of his family will ever go visit his grave. Want well known by people, small church, small community. But let me tell you what, Burt Dills was a saint. He was a godly man. Not because of the ethical prohibitions that he embraced or the things that he did or didn't. The, thing, the reason Bert Dills was a saint was because he loved God with all his heart, mind, soul, and strength. And he loved every neighbor he knew as himself. And it always makes me want to be that kind of person. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.